0: The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Last week, we looked at the origins of the prophet that Matthew quotes there, the prophet Isaiah. This week, we're going to look at the origins of the prophecy itself. This is all part of our Advent series. The word Advent meaning coming, the coming of God to us, which is what this text is all about. Last week, we saw how God came to Isaiah in his time of need. Following the death of the king, God appeared to Isaiah. God came to Isaiah in a very dramatic way. And he came to Isaiah in order to bring him comfort and forgiveness and a calling. It was in this event that, that Isaiah became the prophet of the Most High God. He became God's messenger, the one whom God spoke to, so that Isaiah could then go and deliver these messages to the people. Well, even though God came to Isaiah, the focus of Advent is on a, is on a much better, bigger coming of God, the coming of God in which he came to us in order to become one of us, because that is what Advent is all about. This morning, we are, we are going to look and see what was going on in Isaiah's day when he made that prophecy that Matthew quotes there in his gospel. And what we're going to discover is that as far as Isaiah was concerned, that prophecy was fulfilled during his own lifetime. But then we're also going to learn why it is that Matthew repeats that prophecy and tells us that it actually points to Jesus and why that is such good news for us today. So if you have a Bible... Maybe you like this red one. I wanna invite you to open it up to Isaiah chapter seven. Isaiah chapter seven. And in this red Bible, um, I think it's on page 1070. Isaiah chapter seven. Yeah, 1070 in the red Bible. Now last week, we saw that Isaiah became the prophet of God Right after King Uzziah's death. Well, where we're going to pick things up today in Isaiah 7, some time has actually now passed. And so now it is Ahaz, who was Uzziah's grandson, that's now king in Jerusalem. And at this point, the city is in trouble because armies are marching against them. And so things do not look good for Jerusalem and for Ahaz and for his kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. Let's look at it. This is Isaiah chapter 7, starting in verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, And so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Now, if you're not familiar with all of those names, there are parts of this text that can be a bit confusing. So let me try to explain it, give you some background, Uh, although the place to start is actually to step back even further than these events. See, about 200 years earlier, 200 years before Ahaz became king of Judah, The United Kingdom of Israel, which had been made up of the 12 tribes, they split and ended up almost going to war against each other. This happened when King Solomon's son became king. The larger northern part of the kingdom left and chose their own king, but they still kept the name Israel. The smaller southern portion of the kingdom came to be called the Kingdom of Judah. And Jerusalem remained its capital city. And it's the southern kingdom that David's descendants continued to rule. And so King Ahaz is one of these descendants. But he's about 10 generations after David. Well, here, jumping now back to the time of Isaiah 7, the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, which actually gets called Ephraim in verse 2, maybe just to make it more confusing for us, Not really. There's a reason for it, but we're not going to go into it. Anyway, the kingdom of Israel, Ephraim, they join forces with another nation, the nation of Aram, which was one of their neighbors, and together they march against Jerusalem. And they're doing this because King Ahaz, who's king there in Jerusalem, has declined to join their fight against Assyria. And so Israel and and Aram, Israel and Aram, decide that they're going to conquer Jerusalem and then replace Ahaz with another king who is more inclined to help them in this, their fight against Assyria. And so, of course, the arrival of these two armies uh, on Jerusalem's door causes great fear for King Ahaz as well as the people of Jerusalem. Verse 2 describes them as shaking like trees in the wind as they hear about this, as they see it take place. And so, and they do so because they have very good reason to believe that at this point their future is at risk. However, centuries earlier, God had made a special promise to Ahaz's great, 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 great grandfather thereabouts, basically to King David. See, God had said to King David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. My love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And so God had had promised David an everlasting dynasty. God would ensure that one of David's descendants would always sit on the throne in Jerusalem just as long as they continued to trust and obey him. God would protect, he would guarantee their success. The king and the people, they just needed to remain faithful to him. And so it's because of this ancient promise and because of this new threat that has now arisen that God comes to Ahaz with an important promise, an important message. And God sends his prophet Isaiah to deliver it. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shir Jeshub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. And say to him Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves to make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not happen. It will not take place. The head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So basically, Isaiah has come to King Ahaz, and he says to him, look, you don't need to be afraid. This plan of theirs, this plan of Aram's and Israel's, it is not going to work. God is saying it will not take place. It will not happen. They will not take the city. Instead, they are the ones who are going to be defeated and will fall. But you need to trust God in this. You need to stand firm in your faith or you will not stand at all. And so what Ahaz needs to do here, all that Ahaz needs to do here is just simply trust God and trust that God has got a plan for this situation. Of course, that's pretty easy for us to say as we sit here warm and safe in the sanctuary this morning, isn't it? We don't feel the pressure of ensuring that our city's water supply isn't going to get cut off, which is probably what King Ahaz was doing when Isaiah found him. We are not receiving reports that armies are marching against us. We don't have soldiers at our gates. I mean, obviously, it is much harder to trust God when when we are the ones in the middle of these high-pressure, high-risk situations. I mean, we can see that in our own lives. It's always harder to tithe when money is tight. It's always harder to forgive someone when other people don't want us to. It's always harder to speak what is true when others would prefer the lie. It's always harder to trust God when it just isn't clear to us how things can possibly still work out. But see, our God is not indifferent to this. And so when he comes to Ahaz, and he tells Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah to stand firm, at the same time, God also offers to strengthen his faith. He invites Ahaz to pick a sign A sign that when it's fulfilled is going to give Ahaz sufficient faith to keep trusting that God will, in fact, keep his promises and will be the one who will resolve this crisis for them if they will only let him. Look at verse 10. This is where the offer is made. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz through Isaiah Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. I mean, what a gift of grace! God knows that he's calling Ahaz to do something different, and then he he says to him, look, and I'll even prove to you that I'm trustworthy. You pick the sign, and I'll demonstrate it. But here's how Ahaz responds, verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, at first glance, this Seems like a pretty pious response, almost like Ahaz is saying, look, God, I'll just trust you. You don't even have to prove yourself. But that's not what's happening here. What is actually revealed here is not Ahaz's piety, but actually his faithlessness. What is revealed here is that Ahaz has actually never intended to trust God in this. See, Ahaz has actually already decided where he has put his hope and trust. And it's not in the promises of God. It's in the promises of Assyria. See, rather than trusting that God was going to remain faithful to his promise to David, Ahaz has already reached out to Assyria instead. He has put his faith and his hope in Assyria being the one who will come and save them. And this then, of course, earns him a rebuke from Isaiah. Here it is, verse 13. Then Isaiah said, "'Hear now, you house of David.'" Uh, Meaning Ahaz is the representative of the house of David. "'Hear now, you house of David, "'is it not enough to try the patience of humans? "'Will you also try the patience of my God? "'Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign.'" The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. That would be Aram and Israel. But Isaiah is not done yet. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Broadly speaking, Isaiah tells Ahaz two things here. First, he tells Ahaz that even if he doesn't want a sign, he's going to get one anyway. The birth of a particular baby boy is going to be the sign that God is somebody who can be trusted to keep his promises. We'll come back to that in a minute. But the other thing that that Isaiah tells Ahaz is that if it's Assyria he wants, it is a Syria he's going to get. Assyria is going to come down and is going to destroy these two armies that are threatening them. The problem is that Assyria is not going to stop there. While the Assyrian army is there, they're also going to plunder Ahaz's territory. In verse 17, in fact, Isaiah tells Ahaz that that it is going to be so bad when this happens. It's going to be kind of like when the United Kingdom first split and almost went to war against each other. Basically, Isaiah is saying, Assyria is going to rescue you, Ahaz, but they're going to do so at great cost, and you are the one who is going to have to bear that cost. And that shouldn't surprise us, because so often that is what happens when we put more faith in our earthly leaders than we do in our God. When we come to think that we need kings and presidents and governors and senators in order for our future to be secure, this is what happens. These earthly leaders, they might be able to deliver what we ask of them, but as Ahaz is going to discover, it always comes at a great cost, one that we are the ones who inevitably have to bear. Because this is how things so often work in our world. As true as that may be, at the heart of all of this, though, there is still good news. And so let's see if we can find it. Let's return to the sign that Isaiah describes to Ahaz. Verse 14, go back to verse 14. Here's what Isaiah says. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. I'm going to guess that most of us are more familiar with these words from their appearance in Matthew's gospel than from their origins here in the book of Isaiah. And so I think that makes it really hard for us to to hear them in the same way that Isaiah and Ahaz would have received them initially from God. I mean, consciously or not, we tend to read them through the lens of Christmas, but see, that's not where these words originated, and it's not in Christmas where these words were initially fulfilled. Let me show you. Turn forward just a little bit to Isaiah chapter 8, keeping in mind what Isaiah said was going to happen about the birth of this child. So chapter, Isaiah 8, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to me, again, this is still Isaiah speaking. The Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen. Maher Shalah Hashbaz. And so I called in Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jebarakiah as reliable witnesses for me. Then I made love to the prophetess and she conceived and gave birth to a son and the Lord said to me name him Maher Shalah Hashbaz for before the boy knows how to say my mother, my father or my mother the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria that's the fulfillment of the promise that was made there in Isaiah 7 That's it. Now, maybe you want to object. That birth described there in chapter 8 is not a virgin birth. And that's correct. I mean, right there in verse 3, the child is conceived by very normal means, the lovemaking between Isaiah and this prophetess. But I think that if you go back to chapter 7, you're going to see that the sign is not that the not that a virgin is going to give birth as a virgin. The sign there is actually really just about the timing of when God will rescue the people from these armies. This sign here is just a sign about timing. In the time that it's going to take a young woman to get married, conceive a child with her husband, not by God, conceive a child with her husband, give birth to this son, and then wean him. By the time all that happens, that's when Assyria will have destroyed the threatening armies. That's what Isaiah promises. And so as far as Isaiah was concerned, this prophetic sign was only about timing, And when it would turn out, just like Isaiah had predicted, it was to be a sign to King Ahaz that he should have trusted God, because only God is sovereign over world events, and he is someone who can be trusted to keep his promises. And so this sign in Isaiah 7, it was fulfilled in Isaiah's lifetime. But that, of course, is not why we're talking about it today. And that's not why this prophecy is so important to our Christmas celebrations. See, writing his gospel after the events of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, Matthew, the gospel writer, he reads these words from Isaiah. At this point, able to think back over all the events of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And what Matthew realizes, as he reads these ancient word from Isaiah, is not that Isaiah was wrong, he wasn't. What Matthew realizes is that when God gave Isaiah this message, God was was actually doing and revealing more than anyone realized at the time. See, even way back then, God's plan was bigger and better than what anyone imagined, even Isaiah could imagine at that point. And it wasn't until the long-promised Messiah came and everyone realized who who Jesus actually is, that, that he's not just a baby boy, but that he's also the God who became one of us, that it became all clear to them. That it became apparent that Isaiah 7, and that everything else in the Old Testament, going all the way back to the very beginning, has always been pointing to Jesus, whose birth we celebrate at Christmas. This means that in Jesus, Isaiah's prophetic words about the normal birth of an ordinary child that was intended to reveal the timing of God's rescue from normal enemies also becomes prophetic words about the miraculous birth of an extraordinary child who reveals, who reveals not just the timing, but also the means of God's rescue from our greatest enemies, the enemies of sin, death, and Satan. See, this is the wonder and the glory of Advent, that God is always doing more than we realize and more than we expect. It's the story of God coming to us in the most unexpected and most amazing way, coming to us, God coming to us so that he can become one of us coming to us by taking on human flesh so that he could be born to a carpenter and to his young virgin wife, which was an impossible birth, a miraculous birth, the impossible made possible as a sign that this child, this child was conceived by the Holy Spirit and therefore fully God and fully man. And this was foretold by the prophets, by prophets like Isaiah, even if they didn't always fully understand the magnitude of what God was promising to his people through them at the time. My friends, let this be a reminder to us that God is always at work in the world around us. And that he is always doing more and better things than we are able to see right now. He is always advancing his great unstoppable plan to rescue and to redeem a people for himself, a people who are rescued and redeemed by the son of a virgin that we call Emmanuel, God with us. This is what we celebrate at Advent. This is what Advent reminds us of and prepares us for, the coming of God to us the coming of God to us so that he can be our true rescuer king. We're going to close our service today by sharing the Lord's Supper together. Now that may be, that may seem like kind of an odd way uh, to end a service where we've actually been focused on the birth of a child since this table is very much intended to remind us of both sacrifice and death. But even from birth, Jesus was destined and always moving towards the events commemorated at this table. A death on the cross, not for his sins and crimes, because he was innocent and righteous, but for ours instead. He was born as one of us so that he could die for us. And that he could be the one who would defeat our greatest enemies, the enemies of sin, death, and Satan. See, in his birth... Jesus comes to us in order to become one of us. In his life, Jesus shows us how to truly live. In his death, Jesus rescues us by defeating our greatest enemies. In his resurrection, Jesus shows us that we too get to rise one day. And in his return to heaven, Jesus promises to come back again. The second advent that we are also to anticipate and prepare for today. This table here is set with bread and cup. We're told that at the Last Supper, the Last Supper that Jesus had with his closest followers, he took that bread and he told them that this bread represented his body, which was about to be broken for them. And he broke that bread there in front of them, he blessed it, and then he handed it to them and told them to share it, to participate in it. Then he took the cup. And Jesus told them that this cup represents his blood, which was about to be spilled for them. Spilled so that their sins could be forgiven and so that they could now have a new and better relationship with God. Having explained this, he took the cup, he blessed it, and he gave it to them. And part of the good news is that Jesus wants to share this bread and this cup with you as well.